Father, we, we come to you in worship, even as we have in song been lifting our voices in worship. We just continue that, that line of praise as we pray. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are delighted when your people worship and praise you. You are right here, promise of your word, as we come in the name of Jesus Christ, in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ that gives us access to you, that you are right here with us through your spirit. Thank you for that. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we're not left as people without direction and instruction, but that you have communicated through your divine inspiration this book that we hold in our hands and hide in our hearts, your word to us, your letter to us. Just the reality that though we cannot see this with our physical eyes, that as we corporately take the time here in a few minutes to open up, open up your letter, that you want to be here to speak to us. I was just struck again this week across that verse there in Peter's letter that says that anyone referring to the to the preacher anyone who is speaking should do so as if he is speaking the very oracles of God so Lord I am standing here I believe in that truth I actually do believe that through the power and the presence and the person of your Holy Spirit that you are speaking through me. I, I am not worthy of that. I want to I stay out of your way. I'm asking that you would help me through your spirit to stay out of the way. I don't want people to see me. I want them to have you revealed to the eyes of their heart. I want Jesus lifted up asking that you would do that, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me. Use the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart to be pleasing in your eyes. I'm asking that you would, very specifically, Lord, related to what's going to be shared this morning, I'm asking that you would Open eyes, all of us, me included, eyes to see down into my own heart, my own motives, my own actions, and for you to show us the 
things that we need to see this morning so that we can deal with them under your leadership and the instruction of your word. I'm aware with the subject matter that we're going to be talking about that know what the enemy is going to try to do is he he's going to want to try to put walls up and shut ears and incite offense and I'm asking that you would not let that happen Holy Spirit that you would help me to balance grace and truth and to speak from a place of abject humility and need in my own personal life because I definitely feel that but I believe you're going to and I'm thanking you for it you did that last hour I believe you're going to do that again so have your way Just tell the Lord that quietly in your own heart, whatever he wants to say to you, that you will hear and respond, not resist. Father, a lot of requests on my heart. I don't want to take the time to mention them, but I I do want to pray, Lord, that I know that there are needs here, some very serious needs, and I'm asking that as we encounter you today, that in that encounter, we would find the answers that are needed, the the peace that we long for, the hope that will inspire and motivate truth that will direct and instruct. Trusting you to do that. In the name of Jesus Christ I pray, amen. You may be seated. I told you last Sunday, gave you a little infomercial on what we're going to be talking about for a portion of this message this morning. Maybe that's why half the church is gone. (laughs) I'm not sure, but no, we had actually changed our service times because we're having about a 35% attendance at the 9 a.m. and about a 65% attendance at the 11 a.m. And this morning, we had about a 65 or 70% attendance at the 9.30 service and So I'm not sure what's going on, but we'll see if it balances out here. Anyway, last week I told you that I wanted to talk to you this morning for a portion of the message about God's chastisement. And what has happened as I have poured into this subject and tried to get a fairly comprehensive understanding of this throughout the week that it's morphed into, instead of being a portion of this sermon today, I will only give a portion of the message today. It's going to be at least a two-week detour here. Why 
a message on God's chastisement from a series going through the book or the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Specifically, why in the middle of chapter 6 are we using that as a launching pad to leap into a study on the chastisement of the Lord? There's a good answer to that. Romans chapter 6, Paul has been setting out for us the incredible doctrine of the believer's union with Jesus Christ, a union that really affects everything. It's a brand new existence, an existence in which the individual, when they put their faith in Christ and are saved and baptized into Jesus Christ, that with Christ they die to sin. That's all over in Romans chapter 6. And that with Christ and His resurrection, they are raised, really raised to new life in Christ. So that in their death with Christ to sin, no longer is the guilt of sin a part of their reality. And in their resurrection to Christ, they now have the resurrection power of that new life so that they can live in power over sin. And it's also true that they are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, that they are spiritually already reigning if you're a son or a daughter of God saved through Christ's atoning work. That's already true. But what we've also talked about in Romans chapter 6 is that we still have our feet on the ground right here. We still live in a world where sin reigns. We carry around this thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6 as a mortal, as a, a titles as a mortal body. And what that mortal body does is it still wants to participate in the habits of sin. And so there is this battle taking place in those who are sons and daughters of God that their spirit is willing and longing to do the things that God wants to do and walk in obedience and grow in holiness. And then this thing called the mortal body or the flesh that is tempted by sin is struggling under that temptation. And what Romans chapter 6 is about, verse 1 and verse 15, the same question is asked two times. And the chapter is two treatments and answers to the very same question. And the question that, is, that had been presented by many who heard Paul's message of free grace through Christ unto salvation the conclusion that many of them drew in error was, well, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And so what Paul is doing is he is refuting that lie. And he is going to and does talk about how that is an absurd conclusion for one that has been baptized into Christ and has a brand new existence in Christ. 
to continue to live in sin and even use grace as a license for sin. But in this battle between the flesh and the spirit, here's the question that predicates a launch into the study of God's chastisement. If What does God do? What posture does God take when His sons and His daughters, though they are born again, died with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, what posture does God take toward them when they participate in sin in the mortal body? Particularly, not just occasionally in a moment of weakness, but particularly in habitual sin. Sin that they have succumbed to or given themselves over to and seem to keep returning to that like a dog returns to its vomit. What posture does God take toward the son or the daughter that is in that pattern of habitual sin. It's important, I believe, that we just take a pause here and we launch into that discussion because it's related to what is called God's chastisement. So here is I'm gonna, what I'm going to do over the next two Sundays is, at least this is my plan right now, I'm going to ask eight questions, eight or nine questions about God's chastisement and then just answer them. We're going to try to cover five of them today. We're going to today get a real good overview of what it is and what that means. First of all, we need to begin here. Is it really true? Does God chastise people? And if so, whom does he chastise? So let's just answer that first question. Does God chastise people? And if so, whom does he chastise? Proverbs. I'm going to read three passages of Scripture for you. I think we're going to throw it. Yeah, we've got them all on, the, all on one screen here. What we're going to see is the answer to both of those both parts of that question in these three verses right here. And you're going to see it, both answers in every verse. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father of the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Revelations 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The words used here for discipline and reproof and chastise are really talking about a same concept here. So every verse here affirms, number one, that God is personally and directly involved in the chastisement of people. 
We're going to talk in a minute about what that word really means and unpack it, but let me just make it clear here that, and we could use many other verses, but these verses are very clear that God is involved in the chastisement of people. What about the second part of the question? So if God is involved in the chastisement of people, whom does he chastise? Well, what is obvious in every one of these verses is that the Lord chastises those he what? Those he loves. The Lord chastises those he loves. So that's our first clue. That's kind of a broad answer to the question, whom does the Lord chastise? Let's try to refine it even more from these, initially from these three verses. Because it says some additional things here about whom the Lord chastises. It says that he chastises, look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. It's true that he chastises those he loves, but it also says in the last part of 6 that he chastises what? Every what? Every son. Now, that's not a gender statement. That's a humanity statement. So, a little clearer, a little more refined answer then. Whom does the Lord chastise? The Lord who chastises everyone that He loves chastises every son or daughter. The Lord chastises every single one of His sons or His daughters. I'm going to take you to one more verse, the two verses following Hebrews 12, 6, and we're going to get an even more refined, clearer answer to the question, whom does the Lord chastise? Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. What I want to do in looking at these two verses for a moment is I want to try to just focus on them and draw from them the big idea or the key truth that the writer here is intending to communicate in these two verses. One of the ways that we could get at that is to look at phrases or statements that he makes repetitively. And if you just pick up on that, kind of read through that again quickly, what you'll see is that he five times makes reference to family members. He says, son three times, children once, and father once. So he's obviously talking here about a family relationship using the illustration of a family relationship particularly related to how the father treats the sons or the children. That's going to be in the big idea somewhere. The repetitive use of that would help indicate that. Secondly, there's another word that's repetitive here. 
it's explicitly said three times and implied a fourth, and the word is discipline. Again, a word commonly used uh, related to that idea of chastisement in the New Testament. So, discipline is a major theme, and it's discipline specifically related to a father and his treatment of children, of sons and of children. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit here of context, and this will, I believe, become, I think, very clear. Hebrews was written to a group of people who were going through some very difficult circumstances. I mean, they were facing some fairly significant suffering. And just reading a little ahead of where we just read, the beginning of Romans chapter, I mean Hebrews chapter 12, what we find out is that in the midst of the struggles and the hard aches and the trials that this group of people were facing, what was happening to them, I think a lot of times, is exactly what happens to us. Under the pressure of those difficult times, they were turning their focus onto the problems, onto the struggles and the trials and the difficulties. And what happens when a follower of Christ does that, the problems get bigger and bigger and they take up more and more of the focus and they become eventually an overwhelming influence in the believer's life. And what happens as that focus is turned on to the problems and it's taken off of the truth. There's a direct correlation there. And they get to the point, they did here with the Hebrew people, Hebrew Christians, it happens to us. We get to the point where because of the constant struggle, we get to the point where we just want to Throw in the towel. God, I can't do this anymore. Why are you letting this happen to me? And the question starts to rise up, why is he letting this happen to me? I mean, why is a God who, quote, loves me just letting me walk through this? Does he really love me like he says that he does. Maybe, maybe I'm not a son or a daughter after all. I think that is precisely what was taking place in the Hebrew, to the men and women whom this letter to the Hebrews was written. Because what Paul does and I think it's verse 4 of the 12th chapter, in talking to them about their struggles, he says, listen, have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? Have you forgotten that? I think, man, what, what's going to be a word of encouragement that addresses them as sons or daughters in the midst of their hard times? 
and then he launches into this discussion of the chastisement of God. The very thing that in our human nature can consume, the troubles that can consume us and can be the venue through which the enemy comes to feed the lie. God doesn't care. Maybe you're not a son or a daughter after all. What the writer here says is the very opposite is true. The very opposite is true. That every son and every daughter goes through chastisement, goes through discipline. In fact, the writer gets even more pointed than that to pour out this encouragement in their trials. He gets even more pointed and he says, listen, if you're not going through chastisement, if you're not going through trials, you are an illegitimate child. You see, that's the big idea of Hebrews chapter 12, 7 and 8. It's to teach this truth. All Children, all legitimate children are chastised by their father. And if you're not, you're not a son or a daughter of God. So the very thing that the, our human nature would tend to get defeated by and the very thing that the enemy would want to use to deceive and defeat us align is the very thing that the writer says should be proof positive to you and to me that you are in fact a son or a daughter of God. The very thing that proves that God is active, that God is involved and that he is accomplishing his work in your life. see, that is so often true of the Christian life, this seeming total dichotomy to the reasoning of the world. The thing that the world says and that the enemy says proves the lie he's feeding is the very thing that refutes the lie and proves the truth. That is a repeated process over and over and over again in Scripture. So, the discipline or the chastisement of the Lord. If you are under it, if you are experiencing it, if it is weighing you down, if it is causing you to question the love of God and question the involvement of God in your life and bring you to the point of discouragement to where you just want to give up, what's probably happening is that you've got your eyes off of the truth and off of God. You're focused on the problem instead of focused on the Lord, and you are being fed a line that is in direct opposition to the truth you should be hearing, and that is God's working in your life. He's trying to do something in you. So hear the right message. Shut your ears to the lie, take your eyes off the problem, turn your eyes back onto the truth and focus in and get a perspective from above because when you are down and under it, if you give into it, you cannot see the truth anymore. And what you've got to do is you've got to come back to this. 
That's why Paul said, listen, have you forgotten that word that addresses you as sons or daughters? Look back over here. Take your eyes off of the problems. Now think about the answer that that gives to this question. And I have heard this question as a pastor for 22 years now. I have heard this question many times. Why is it that the evil people seem to do all of their wickedness and just get away with it? Brad, I mean, why is that, Pastor? I mean, from my vantage point, what I see is they are participating in open, aggressive sin, almost shaking their fist at God, and yet they are healthy and they're wealthy, and it looks like they just continue to have a lot of fun. Why is that? Apply the truth that we were just talking about to that question. A good portion of that answer is this. They're not under the chastisement of God because God chastises His kids. It's the Father who loves His children that is committed to chastising His children when they are in the midst of their sin. That is not the way that He works in those who are not His children. You see, there is a difference between the chastisement of God and the wrath of God. Do not confuse those. If you confound those terms, then it will be difficult for you to understand the doctrine as it fleshes itself out through Scripture. The wrath of God is something that is handed out by a judge, God the judge of all. The chastisement of God is something that is handed out by a father, God the father of those who have accepted his son. The wrath of God is something that is handed out as a form of punishment. The chastisement of God is handed out as a form of training and improvement. Those are different things. So let's jump into the third question then. I've answered the question, why a message on chastisement in the middle of Romans 6? The second question, does God really chastise and if so, whom? Here's the third question. What is chastisement? Let's get specific. What is that? What does it mean? What are the concepts that that deals with. I've talked to several right here in this church that are resistant to the idea of God disciplining or chastising His children, and I understand why after talking to them. They grew up in, some of them grew up in environments where God was painted in their formative years as a God who really led with an iron fist and was just waiting for an opportunity for them to step out of line so He could step down in and yield a, a harsh hand toward them in punishment. 
And then they came to discover a God of grace and love. And so when they hear about chastisement, they're thinking about it according to the terms with which, within which they used to hear that subject matter. So it becomes, the point I'm making is it becomes really important to understand what the word means or else we won't want to embrace the concept. If you understand it biblically, you'll be much more apt to embrace it personally. So what does the word specifically mean? I'm going to give you four words that are included in the concept of chastisement. Four words, here they are. Instruction, correction, discipline, and training. I'm not saying that's all exhaustive, but that is, it's going to do a really good idea of help, helping flesh out the concept here. Instruction, correction, discipline, and training. What God does in chastisement is that He is working on training up the individual, the son or the daughter, upon which His chastisement comes. He is working on training them up to be all that He desires them to be, to come into that place of spiritual maturity where there will be incredible blessing and fruit and fullness of joy. So all of those four words, correction, instruction, discipline, and training, they are all words that have a positive bent toward them. And we can understand that. You notice I did not use the word punishment to describe chastisement. Specific reason that I did not do that. Because the way some people use punishment, it can be used only and exclusively as a negative term. Like a person causes pain or breaks the law and brings pain into somebody's life, then there could be a retribution or an action taken against that person to make them feel the pain that they handed out. Just kind of pain for pain. That is not chastisement. Chastisement always has as its central and primary goal or purpose the reformation or the improvement or the moving of the individual to a place of blessing. It may be painful getting them there, but it always has as its goal the desire and the intent to bless and give joy and peace and hope and happiness. So that is some key kind of conceptual ideas of the meaning of the biblical understanding of God's chastisement. The word itself, even more specific, the word itself, we get from a Greek word, I mean a Latin word. And the Latin word, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly as castus, but the word, the Latin word means this. It means pure. Pure. I want you to mark that down in your memory bank because we're going to come back to it in a minute. So, to chasten then literally means this, 
to purify. To chasten means to purify. And so that concept really describes all of those other four words and the work that God does when He is chastising an individual to discipline them, train them up, correct them, teach them. He is really working at bringing them to a place of purity in obedience. The chastening of the Lord. Okay, so that's some pretty good discussion on what does the term actually mean. Here's question number four. For what purpose then does God chastise? And that last statement that I just made leads us right into that. I'm going to give you just some overview verses that will kind of paint this in a big scope way. Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline, same idea, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. God's chastisement here is described as the way of life. The very thing that we get under and we say, God, why are you doing this or allowing this? And the writer here is saying what seems to be the very thing that is stealing your life is actually the very way of life. It is the very means and the tool by which God is taking you and putting you on and keeping you on and moving you down the path of life. It may not feel like it in the moment, but it is the method through which he does that. Psalms 94, 12 through 14. Blessed is the man or the woman. We don't feel like this, but blessed is the man whom you discipline. Well, why in the world is that true? Look at the middle of that verse. What is the purpose? To give him rest from days of trouble. Do you see the dichotomy there? We are under the chastisement. And the conclusion is, God, why all the trouble? And what the truth of God's Word says is that's what He's using to get you out of the trouble. Because what you're sensing is trouble, His chastisement, is His mercy and grace, because if He left you where you were at, you would really get into trouble. So his chastisement is the very thing he uses to bring you to a place of rest, out of that trouble, to a good place, a place of health, of wholeness, of joy, of peace, of righteousness. And then this great overarching statement, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God brings that painful chastisement into our life in order to keep us safe 
in order to keep us away from his wrath and under his mercy and grace. In order to keep us out of the paths toward destruction that the world is taking. You see, again, I'm just thinking about the Hebrews, their struggle under their hard, very hard times. What they so desperately needed and what the writer is giving them here is he is setting the truth before them saying, listen, you're missing it because you're consumed with the problem. Look back at the truth. Come back to the truth. Come back to the truth. And we have to do that continually or the very same deception will begin to overtake us. The only 